Good morning. I have spent quite a bit of time this week preparing this message. Not that it uh, required more time to understand the passage itself, but to deal with all the different points of view that people have about this subject. And so, maybe just to preface what I want to say, what I believe God's Word is going to tell us, is that this moment in time, in the future, we can be assured is going to happen. When it will happen, how it will happen, the events leading up to it, the events following it, are all in constant state of discussion and debate. And so my prayer is that rather than driving us into our corners to come out fighting, we will instead meet in the middle of the room and embrace one another and rejoice that this fact is true. He's coming back. Let us pray as we begin. Actually, let's read the passage first. And then we will pray. <clears throat> In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 through 18. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we bow, Lord, before your word, acknowledging that apart from your Holy Spirit opening our hearts and our minds and our eyes, we will not see or hear or understand the wonderful truths in your word. We need you to help us see and understand. And so, Lord, I ask that you would move by the power of your Holy Spirit upon each and every heart here today. And, Lord, that you would open our minds, that you would open our eyes, and that we would see together 
And it would bring us together as this passage itself prophesies that we will all be together with the Lord forever. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now for those young people or anyone else in the room that would like, the key phrase in today's message is in the air. In the air. So anytime you hear me say in the air, make a little tally mark and then come up and tell me at the end of the message how many times you counted me saying that. I'll give you a few right now. In the air, in the air, in the air. Okay? So there's at least three. Now, this passage, as we're going to see, is Paul's revelation. It's a mystery. And now the word mystery in the Bible, it does not mean it's still unknown. It means it had been unknown, and now it has been revealed. And so there are many times people misunderstand that, and they think that when Paul or others refer to something as being a mystery, it means, well, give it up. You're not going to be able to understand it. But no, this passage is revealing what had been a mystery. Now, we know from the Gospels that Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. We see that in John chapter 14 and verses 1 through 3. Jesus says to his disciples, who are to be his apostles, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so we know from this passage and many others that Jesus is coming back. But the question is when? Not only when, but how? And what should we expect? Now, there are different passages that address this question. And here we find in Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as in the days of Noah, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. 
Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, there are many things that we can learn from this passage. I'd like to point out a few things that at least inform my understanding. First of all, eschatology, the study of the last days, end end times, the last things, is not a date-setting proposition. Anytime somebody tells you they know the day or the hour that Christ is returning, you can pretty much uh, walk away. Because as soon as you expect him to come at that particular hour, you know he's not coming at that particular hour. Because it says he's coming at an hour when you do not expect. So that would mean that it's a little counterintuitive here. When things are getting really, really bad and you say, oh, Jesus is going to come back soon. He's certainly coming back soon. Then no, he's probably not. When things are going really well and you think, uh, you know, this, you know, we're on a roll here. You know, revival's breaking out and we're winning in the elections and everything's going our way. You're not expecting the Lord to come back. <laughs> That's when he's probably going to come back at an hour you do not expect. So it's a little counterintuitive. The more you think it's about to happen, the less likely it's about to happen. In fact, we're told in in one place when people are saying peace and safety. Now, it's not clear whether they're praying for that or whether they're pronouncing it. That we've got it, finally. We've got our peace and safety. And then sudden destruction comes. So this is not by accident. God intentionally is keeping us confused. And his his intention is not that we should just walk away from it and say, I can't figure it out. I'm not even going to think about it. He says, no, think about it a lot. Watch and pray and be ready because he is coming back. The other thing to notice here that Jesus uses the story of Noah and the flood in order to illustrate what it's going to be like when he returns. Now, if we take the story of Noah as being something of a type and a shadow of the coming of Christ and the taking away of the church, then in that case, Noah would be like Jesus in the sense of building an ark, preparing a place for us. And then the door is opened And those who are called of God, trusting God, believing the good news, enter the ark. And then the door is closed. And so they are now being taken away from the wrath that will come, which is the flood. And so we see God going through a process here. First of all, as Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. And then we know in the context of other passages that following that, there is some kind of a cataclysmic destructive event from which we have been rescued. So that's the pattern that we see here. Now in that light, we have this description of two men in the field. One will be taken and the other left. One point of view is the person taken is the bad guy. 
The other point of view is the person taken is the good guy. Okay? So we, we have, regardless of how we understand that, there is a point at which there is a sorting out. And God takes some and he leaves some. And we have kind of fallen into a, a, an embarrassment because some have taken these ideas and created a series of books, you know, the Left Behind series, and a series of movies, the Left Behind movies. And so it's almost become a, a, a badge of, uh, I'm, I'm more informed and I'm more intelligent and I'm not, I'm not of that, uh, that simple-minded Left Behind crowd. Is there anybody like that here? You would never want to be identified with anything that had the phrase left behind in it. Well, I want to warn you and encourage you to not be ashamed to be identified with what might actually turn out to be the truth. Okay? Now, one of the things I've noticed as I researched this is that when you put up a... a for instance, if, if you go to Wikipedia and you look up the word, the, or the phrase, the rapture, there is a substantial article there about this subject. And they give all the different points of view regarding the rapture, the snatching away of the Christians. And they describe who believes which, you know, the premillennialists, the dispensational premillennialists, the post-millennialists, the amillennialists, and so on. And then they name the different Bible teachers who are associated with each of those positions. And guess which position Wikipedia attacks most fiercely and ridicules most gleefully? It's the left behind version. Now, there are, in, in fact, here's how they begin it. They have a list of all of the people who believe in this uh, pre-tribulation uh, rapture, premillennial pre-tribulation rapture. And the first person on the list of those who believe this is Jimmy Swaggart, which is somebody that most people don't want to be identified with, right? He, he was a man uh, who, a very effective evangelist until he fell into sin, and now he's kind of toxic, you know, he's like so many evangelical ministers who have become radioactive. And so we decide, well, because he fell into sin and because the world loves to laugh at Jimmy Swaggart, then we have to kind of distance ourselves from everything he believed, which would include the gospel. <laughs> okay? So I want to warn you, don't let Satan pull that trick on you that just because somebody who you don't like believes something, that doesn't mean that it's not true. Now, that doesn't prove anything, but I will tell you, if I lined up all the different positions on the wall here, and I asked Satan to take a shot at the one he hates the most, it would be boom, boom, boom against the position of a pre-tribulation, premillennial rapture. I'm just saying. It seems to be the one 
that the world hates the most. Now, we are told that we don't know when he's coming back. But he is coming back. Now, many are confused about what will happen when Jesus returns. But there's one person who is not confused at all. And that's my good friend, J.M., good old John MacArthur. Let me read a quote from a passage from his sermon on this passage, and I think you'll get the drift. He says, Our Lord Jesus will return. He will return for his people to take them to heaven, to the place he has been preparing for them. He also will return to judge the world and the ungodly in the world. He will return to judge Satan and unholy angels. He will return to execute all who are evil. He will return to establish his kingdom of righteousness, and he will rule the world for a thousand years, as Revelation makes clear. He will finally, at the end of that thousand years, heap judgment on a rebellious population that have developed during the time of his kingdom, and he will bring them into eternal judgment. Then he will destroy the universe as we know it and create in its place a new heaven and a new earth wherein only righteousness and holiness is present and all who are righteous and holy will dwell with him there forever. So there we have it. But as they say in the commercials, but wait, there's more. No one knows the hour. No one. But when he comes, all of these things that I've just mentioned will take place, and they will take place over a period of time. He will come for his church, and there will be judgment across the earth in a time known as the tribulation. The final half of the tribulation is called the great tribulation. It ends with Armageddon, when all of the ungodly are destroyed and sent to eternal hell. And then he establishes a thousand-year millennial kingdom, and at the end of that, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the flow. So he comes, and then there's at least seven years of tribulation, and then a thousand years of his glorious kingdom before the final creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Signed, John MacArthur. Now, he's pretty confident that this is the way it's going to work. But I think we need to leave some room. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1 in which we read, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Do you know what was happening or what will be happening during that half an hour of silence in heaven? All of the prophecy teachers throughout all of history will be changing their charts. That's what's going to be happening. They're all going to be busy rearranging their charts and bringing, in to line, bringing them into line with whatever actually happens. Now, this uh, is one of the best prophecy charts I could find. 
it's got a lot of really good things. And uh, I think uh, I agree with a lot of it. But the one interesting thing about this chart, the black line, the bold black line, that is, is basically Satan, you know, you, he's being cast out, he's ending up over here, then he ends up over there. He goes down through Hades, he comes over to the lake of fire, he goes up again after the millennium, he goes back down into the lake of fire. This is a really complicated chart. And he's trying to do justice to all the passages of Scripture that describe what is going to happen, not just at the end of times, but throughout redemptive history. So we have the present earth here, we have the new heavens and the new earth over here on the far end. Now, I bring this chart up in order to point out the fact that it's complicated. When you try to put all the passages and prophecies together, it is easy to disagree with one another as to when something happens and when something else happens and whether something happens at all, whether something is symbolic, whether it's literal, and how do you know when something is intended to be literal and when it's intended to be merely symbolic. I don't intend to try to resolve all that today. I have my own positions. I agree substantially with John MacArthur. But I believe that a lot of the confusion on this issue is cleared up when we understand what the day of the Lord is. Because as we can see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and then the beginnings of, verse f of chapter 5, the coming of the Lord to gather us to himself in the air is something that happens before the day of the Lord, which is his coming to earth, as we see in Isaiah, to judge the earth in righteousness. In Isaiah 2, verse 12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Continuing in verse chapter 13 and verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then Isaiah 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Now, whenever the Jewish community in Jesus' day heard the phrase, the day of the Lord, they understood it to be, as Isaiah describes it, as a day of judgment, of wrath, of destruction. And so when the Apostle Paul begins to speak concerning the day of the Lord in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, it is not the same thing as the rapture that he's describing in the end of chapter 4. So however we understand all these other things, I think we should be able to agree that these are two distinct events. The day of the Lord comes next. Now, let's take a look. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4, and then continuing in verses 9 through 11. 
But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So the thief in the night is not the rapture. It's the day of the Lord. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. In verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, remember in this passage in the chapter 4, he's answering the question, what about those who have died? What about those who are asleep in Christ? Have they missed out on this? Are they going to not get resurrected? Are they, what's going to happen to them? And so he's saying that those, whether they are awake or they sleep, that we should live together with him and therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. And so after the rapture of the church, we will not be here to see the wrath of God. Even though we suffer the persecution of men, and even though we may live through horrible times of tribulation, as many around the world are living right now, and which we may go through ourselves here in this country, that tribulation is not the great tribulation that Jesus refers to as being worse than anything that's ever happened before and nothing like it will ever happen again. So we're dealing with something very, very horrendous. And we see that as we look at other passages of Scripture, that that is the wrath of God. Now, the rapture is not Christ's return to earth. We see again and again in this reference that it is his return to come for us in the air. Let's take a look. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I want you to notice the details of this passage. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. These poor Thessalonian believers are grieving. Remember how much we're told that they love one another and what an admirable thing it was how much they loved one another. And so now when any one of them died, they grieved over the loss of this loved one. And they wanted to know what's going to happen to them. Have they missed out? Are they somehow not going to have the same experience of being uh, meeting the Lord in the air as we've been told, as Paul is taught when he was with you. And so Paul answers the question, you don't need to sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So Jesus is not coming in this particular context he's not coming alone he's bringing with him all those who are asleep in him all right now let's keep going 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Paul is saying, I have received this as revelation from the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. In other words, it's loud enough to raise the dead. And the dead in Christ will rise when? First. They're going to rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't come to earth in this passage. He comes above the earth and he raises all those who are asleep in Christ and all believers who are saved by the sacrifice of this lamb he raises them up first. Then those who are alive and upon the earth will be caught up. And the word here is snatched. And we're going to look at that word in a moment. They'll be snatched up together with them. That's all these who have been raised from the dead. To meet the Lord in the air. So there's your answer. Don't worry about those who've died in Christ. They're not going to miss out. In fact, they're going to get there first. They're going to be waiting for us in the air as we are snatched up to be together with them. Therefore, and it says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. From that point on, we will be with the Lord. And everything else he does from this point on, we are with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, the word rapture is actually the Greek verb harpazo. And in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12, we find this word used. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Take it, take it by force. Harpazo. Matthew 13 and verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away, that's harpazo, what was sown in his heart. This is he who who received the seed by the wayside. So this idea of snatch up is not just a a, a light touch here. We're talking about a, a violent grabbing and taking. And finally, in John chapter 10, a very comforting passage. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them, harpazo, out of my Father's hand. We are safe in the Father's hand. No one's going to take us away. So the rapture is this great snatching away of those believers who are alive when Christ returns in the air to gather his church. But what about the believers who have already died? What about them? That's the question that the Thessalonians are wanting to know. And the answer is, 
that they have fallen asleep. Because of what Christ has done for us, death has lost its sting. It is no longer this thing that we need to be afraid of. It is simply a point at which our bodies are now going to go to sleep in the Lord. Now, I want to emphasize, not our souls. The Thessalonian believers were grieving over their brethren and wanting to know if they're going to miss out on the rapture and have no resurrection. And the answer clearly is no, that they're going to be with the Lord. Now, this raising of our bodies, this is a physical resurrection. It's not just a spiritual thing. Those who are with the Lord already, who are asleep in Christ, it's their bodies that are asleep, not their souls. This is important because some people distort these passages when it talks about uh, uh, being asleep, and and they make it a total thing. But that doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. There's no such thing as soul sleep in the Bible. In Luke 16, 22 through 23, So it was that the beggar died, this is Lazarus, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in the torments of Hades, or hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. This is immediately after death. This is not after some resurrection. This is not after some some other event. This is, they both died, and now they both are awake. Their souls are not sleeping, okay? Now, again, Luke 23, verse 42. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So there is no going to sleep here. He's immediately with the Lord that day. Philippians 1.23, we are confident, yes, and well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. When the body goes to sleep, the soul goes to be with the Lord and is wide awake. (laughs) So, there is no soul sleep. There is no purgatory, for those of you from a Catholic background. There's no no, uh, burning out the, the, the dross in your soul You go immediately to be with the Lord when you die. And if you do not know the Lord, you go immediately to hell. There is no no intermediate place. There is no time gap. Now, not only that, but those whose bodies are asleep, as I said, are going to get up and go first. Then those who are alive will get to go up and meet them, those who have gone ahead of us, in the air, as we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and uh, verse 15. So we, the Lord, he says, they will by no means precede those who are asleep. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, those who sleep in Christ get to go to the head of the line. They will be there ahead of us 
and we will meet them in the air if we are still alive and remain when this occurs. So let's go back for a moment and look specifically at the issue of the resurrection. What is the resurrection? In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, Paul unpacks this doctrine for us, and it ties in together with what he teaches in Thessalonians, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. But he writes here, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There it is. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to, to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority, all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So the resurrection of our bodies and then the recreation of the entire universe, as, as John uh, MacArthur puts it, is going to be massive. It's going to be global. It's going to be universal. Now think about that word, universal. That's really big. These miracles are so over the top, it forces you to grapple with the whole idea of what it means for God to be sovereign over his creation. And, and up until just the last few decades, we had nothing we could compare this to, to have such complete and sovereign control over all of reality to the point that you could say we're going to have universe 2.0. But now we do have an analogy. And we, and we see this. In fact, people in the, in the secular world see this correlation as well. This reveals that God has more sovereign control over his creation than a computer programmer has over his virtual reality simulation. And if you know anything about computer programming and how all of these things are happening in a code, and if that code gets infected with a computer virus, with malware, as they call it, then the only way to really deal with it is to somehow strip out all that malicious code and restart, reboot the whole system in a pure and completely pristine computer simulation. Now, I'm not saying God's a computer programmer. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying what he does with physical and spiritual reality corresponds to what a 
computer programmer is able to do with his virtual reality simulation. You know, this goes so far, people who are so desperate to not acknowledge the existence of God are now proposing, and I mean they're serious about them. These are some of the greatest minds of our day are seriously proposing that we are living in a computer simulation that is so advanced, thousands of years beyond what we are at right now, and that they are so advanced in their computer programming that we are actually little computer programs like the movie The Matrix, that we're just running around you know, doing our thing, thinking that we're having a real life, and in reality we're in a, some kind of a, a, a cocoon somewhere uh, working as a battery for the system. That is not what it is, but the world is trying to find a way to make sense of what they're discovering. Scientists are beginning to find evidence of something like code in the genetic uh, uh, in, in the genes that we see in our physical body. Every form of life has this code in its genetic material that allows it to be healed when it needs to be healed, to grow new limbs when it needs to grow new limbs. How is that possible? There's got to be some intelligence behind this. And so they desperately say, well, maybe we're just all living in a computer simulation and whoever's running it is able to, uh, to reprogram us when he chooses. Now, I'm convinced that the world is going to keep going down that path and try to come up with an entirely godless, an entirely God-free, if you will, worldview that allows everything that they observe to be answered without any reference to the Creator, but rather to some advanced civilization programming the universe as we experience it. That's their only escape. They can't deny what's being discovered. It's a glorious time to be alive in terms of scientific breakthroughs. But the world is, is just as uh, creative, if you will, at coming up with alternative scenarios as long as they don't have to acknowledge the existence of a true and living God and be accountable to him and have their, their lives judged by the righteousness as he defines it, uh, they are desperate to escape. And that's why even in the midst of the judgment of God, we find people hiding themselves in caves and shaking their fists of, at God rather than repenting and believing. They're so convinced that he cannot be the true and righteous God. So what's all this about shouting and the archangel and the blowing of the trumpet? What are we supposed to get from that? Paul tells us that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. Now I believe that the shout and the voice of the archangel are basically the same thing. The Lord is shouting with the volume and the power of an archangel. That's how I understand it. I don't think there's an archangel standing beside him and Jesus shouts and then the archangel shouts. You know, I think it's just one big shout. And it's like when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus is alive in the grave. This is a resurrection. And the power in the voice of Jesus raises the dead. 
Now, when you think about the physics of that, it gets pretty crazy, right? Because we know that the molecules that make our bodies are everywhere. They've, there's been thousands of years now for this to decompose and get scattered. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus is going to shout. And our bodies are going somehow are going to suddenly exist and our souls are going to be in that body and they're going to rise and meet the Lord in the air. And after they have risen, then we are caught up, snatched away to be with the Lord in the air. So it's going to be very loud. Okay, we're, going to, we're not going to go quietly, let's put it that way. Every eye is going to see him, we're told. Every ear is going to hear him. This is not something that the world is going to be able to ignore. In Jude chapter 9, we have the only other reference to an archangel, and that's Michael in contending with the devil. And when he disputed about the body of Moses, he dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. You see, whatever's going on here, the angel, the archangel Michael is not going to speak of Satan in a disrespectful way. Now, I think we should take a lesson from that. Sometimes we talk about the devil and we make jokes about it. And we, you know, like he's some little red imp with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. And, and Satan loves to see us misunderstand who he is and how he's able to oppose God and how God is allowing his rebellion to run its course for the glory of God. Now, I don't understand it all. I don't claim to understand it all, but I see it in the Scriptures. And so I would just encourage you as a side uh, point, if Michael's not going to rebuke Satan in a reviling accusation, then maybe you shouldn't either. Maybe you should just say, Lord, rebuke him. Let the Lord do the rebuking. I hear people all say, I rebuke you, Satan. That's the Lord's job. Okay, that's the Lord's job. In Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 5, declare it in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together, and say, assemble yourselves. So this trumpet is, represents the trumpet of gathering, the trumpet of assembly. And so when the trumpet is, is sounded, it is the assembling of all those who have trusted in God, who are the righteous, who are going to go into eternity to live forever with him. We're all going to be there in the air. Some will get there first, others will get there soon. And so that is what the trumpet and the shout is all about. Now here's an interesting detail. It would seem that Paul has dibs on meeting the Lord in the air and going first. Now, I had not noticed this before, but I just want you to follow me through this passage and tell me what you think. He says in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. In order for Paul to be resurrected, he has to die, right? So he's saying he wants to go through this process of the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that he may experience the power of his resurrection. Now, 
It doesn't have to be that way. There are other ways to understand this. But take a look at what he says next. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now we know he's not referring to being good enough. Somehow being more righteous. And so he gets to be resurrected. We know that our salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone. So what is required in order to attain to the resurrection of the dead if you are a believer who's been saved by God's grace? Well, the answer is obvious. You have to be dead to be resurrected. So then he continues, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching toward those things which are ahead. Are you ready for the big reveal? I press, to, for, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Does that sound familiar to you? Upward call, a shout, a trumpet, and then the dead in Christ will rise first. I think Paul is telling us, if I have my druthers, I'd rather go with the first crowd. (laughs) I want to be there first, and I'll meet you guys as you come up. Those who are alive... And remain. So Paul seems to be saying that he wants to go through death in order to attain the resurrection and gain the prize of the upward call of God when Jesus returns to gather his people in the air. He wants to get there first. Now, the day of the Lord will be different. After dealing with this event, this this what we now call the rapture, the snatching away, and however that happens, whenever that happens, we know that the day of the Lord will be different. And Paul picks up on this in the very next passage, in chapter 5 and verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 6 through 8, we have another reference to this, this idea. He says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does this happen immediately? Do we arise and meet the Lord in the air and then... We all turn around and these flaming angels and the Lord himself 
say attack? I don't know. But it seems as though as soon as we are safely with the Lord, that vengeance is going to be heaped upon the world and the fulfillment of the prophecies that we see in, in God's word regarding the day of the Lord and the tremendous violence that that involves. So next week, Lord willing, if we haven't all been raptured, we will examine what Paul has to say about the day of the Lord, which seems to follow closely on the rapture of the church. Now, as I said in my opening remarks, it's not my intention to change your your eschatology. I just simply want to say, you've got to put this passage into its place somewhere in your eschatology. Okay, However you may arrange it, don't skip past this passage because it conflicts with your systematics. Okay, That's one of the problems with systematic theology is it, it kind of pushes us toward emphasizing some passages and de-emphasizing other passages, just as we do with Reformed theology and Arminianism. You know, the Arminian emphasizes certain passages and ignores other passages, and then the Reformed emphasize certain passages and kind of tiptoe past other passages that raise a question about our systematics. We have to be people who are willing to embrace the whole counsel of God. And even when it seems to be a paradox. It just doesn't seem to jibe. It doesn't make sense. Well, it's only because we're looking at it from a perspective that uh, we don't have God's perspective. We see things from down here. I love the, uh, the old uh, song uh, that uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but I know that it was uh, back in the Jesus movement. It talks about my life is like a tapestry. You know, and all I can see is the tangled threads on the back side of the tapestry. And someday I'm going to get to look at the top of the tapestry and be able to see how even the darkest threads were being woven in as a beautiful pattern. And so we are living in a, in a under-the-tapestry point in our lives where we can only see the tangled threads of God's eternal purpose. It's impossible for us to make it all work from our point of view. But someday, folks, we're all going to get to see the other side of it. And it'll all make sense then. And so I close with this, again, a Jesus movement phrase. In the meantime, I'll see you here, there, or in the air. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, be glorified. Lord, we can laugh at ourselves in the way that we sometimes uh, oversimplify the truths of your word. But Lord, protect us from the kind of uh, intellectual arrogance that would take a simple truth and cast it aside because it's not complicated enough. I ask God that you would reveal the truth to us in such a way that even the simplest among us can understand it and believe it and live in the light of it. And we ask all these things in your mighty name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.